0: at home, school, your workplace, or across the street. Relationships are everywhere, and having healthy ones are vital to living the best life possible. God designed us for relationships, and we are stronger together. In this series, Relationship Goals, we'll dive into what it looks like to cultivate healthy and thriving relationships in every area of our lives. All righty, how's everybody doing at City First? Come on, let me hear ya. Yep, it's good Good to see ya. Especially thank you for making it through the snow here at uh, the Spring Creek location, but snow can't hold us back, right? We're tough people up here in Northern Illinois. Wanna welcome everyone joining us right now from Cape Coral where there is no snow and we're all very jealous, as well as everybody at State Line and also Dixon and Hardy, God Behind Bars. Come on, let's give it up for the God Behind Bars guys. We love you guys very much. All of you join us online and on TV. Well, we begin a brand new series today called Relationship Goals, and we're going to talk about relationships, all kinds of relationships. So please do not think that we're only talking about married couples. We are also talking to people that are dating, people that are single, people that are divorced, maybe even widowed, or whatever stage of relationships you find yourself in. Uh, Today and for the next three weeks, I'm actually going to be talking about principles of relationships that will make every relationship in your life healthy. And that's the goal, because when we have healthy relationships, normally we have then a healthy soul and a healthy life. And so uh, life really is made up of relationships, if you think about it. In fact, everybody at work that you relate with, everybody at school, if you're in school, um, your family, your neighbors, uh, people in your community, these are all relationships. And so we want to have the healthiest, God-centered relationships as possible. Um, You know, I was talking to somebody recently, and they referred to their girlfriend as their ride or die, all right? Now, some of you have heard this term before. Now, I actually ride motorcycles, and I always thought growing up that if you, uh, you know, said ride or die, that meant that if you can't ride a motorcycle, you'd rather die. But now it's changed, all right? This idiom has changed, and now it means someone in your life who's loyal Who will stick it out through thick and thin, who is with you by your side? That could be, you know, a spouse, that could be a boyfriend or girlfriend, it could be a best friend or whatever. They are your ride or die. So in my case, I guess my ride or die is Jen, all right? She's my ride or die. Um, although I saw this sign recently and I thought Jen would actually ask this question if I called her my ride or die. She would say this, I don't know if I'm really a ride or die chick, I have questions. Where are we riding to? Why do I have to die? And can we get food on the way? So anyway, that, that probably for some of you are like, yep, that's me. But today, that whole idea of ride or die, kind of the basis or the root of it, I want to talk about this idea of commitment, like being with people, like sticking with it through thick or thin. And if you had to ask me, and I'm not an expert, but if you had to ask me just in what I do and the people I talk to and what I see right now in our culture, our culture has a tough time with commitment. It really does, in, in all areas, not just relationship. I mean, commitment to work, commitment to whatever. I mean, it's, it just seems like we, we seem to, as a society, be losing this um, gift or this, this strength of commitment. Now, again, that's not everybody. Um, and by all means, realize I'm making a very broad brushstroke statement there. So, so there are definitely pockets that that is not true. But, but I will tell you that it seems like uh, commitment seems to be going the way of the buffalo. And, and so I want to talk about that today. I want to talk about commitment. I want to talk about the, the basis of any good relationship is commitment. And again, that could be a marriage, or it could be a best friend relationship, or even a business partnership. It's based upon trust and commitment. And so, um, you know, a, 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 a thing that we can, we can see in every, every relationship that is healthy is this idea of trust. And our world is based upon commitment-making or promise-making as well as promise-keeping, right? So, you know, a, a bride or a groom will stand on a stage of a church and they'll, they'll say something like this to one another. They'll say, you know, I take you, fill in the name, I take you to be my wedded husband, my wedded wife, uh, to have in the hold from this day forward, I believe God has brought us together, that he has led me to love you with a deep and an abiding love. I give you all that I am and all that I possess, and it goes on and on. And, you know, they they say commitments and vows to one another. And this is a promise, right? Or maybe even we look at the founding fathers of our nation. Back on July 4th of 1776, they drafted what we now call the Declaration of Independence. And do you know that the very last line in the Declaration of Independence reads like this? It says, and for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. And then they sign that document. That's a commitment. It was a commitment to not only to what was in that document, but to each other, Right? Or a person may stand in a courtroom this week and put their hand on a Bible and raise their other hand and say, You know, somebody asks them the question, Do you solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth? So help you, God. And they have to answer yes or no. It's a commitment, it's a promise. Or maybe this week there will be two business people that will gather in a boardroom somewhere and there will be a lawyer there. And, and you know, they'll, they'll sign a legal binding document that says that they're leveraging all of their resources and talents together to form a business partnership. Again, that is a promise. Or last but not least... You get paid this week or maybe this month, and you know, maybe it's direct deposit, or maybe you get the check or whatever, and, and what do you do? You, you give it to the bank, and the bank gives you an online statement and says you have a certain amount of money that's in your account, and, and you know what? There's a trust relationship there. Like, you believe the money's actually there. Like, for example, let me just ask you this. Have you seen your money lately? Like, have you actually gone to the teller and said, I would like to see my money, please? Well, no, of course not, because... There's a trust relationship. There's a commitment, a promise that has been made. You give your money, and the bank then says, we are entrusted with your money. We're now going to create some interest, depending on how long you keep it there, what kind of account it is, and you just trust that your money is there, and, and they are a trustworthy uh, holder of your money, in a sense, or steward of your money. You see, if you think about it, all of life is based upon trust in relationships even your relationship with God, right? You raised your hand, you prayed a prayer, maybe at the end of one of our city first services, and said, I want to make Jesus the leader and the forgiver of my life. So what did you do? You confessed your sins. You said, God, forgive me of my sins. I believe Jesus died for me and that your sins are forgiven. And now heaven is my home someday and I can live a life of purpose. But can I tell you, that's all based upon trust. It's based upon promises and words spoken. But unfortunately, we live in a society that many times is full of promise breakers. Not promise keepers, promise breakers. And we do it. You and I do it. Other people have done it to us. It's like somebody tells you, okay, I'll be there at 2 o'clock, and they don't show up. And, and, you know, or maybe they say, I'll do that, and then they don't do it. Or maybe they commit to something, and then they quit. Or maybe they say, I promise, and then they forget to do whatever they promised. And how does that make your relationship feel? Well, I'll tell you what. If you have a relationship, whether that be a marriage, dating, single friends, whether it be a business partnership, and there is a chronic problem of promise breaking that's in that relationship, your relationship begins to go on shaky ground, right? Isn't that true? Because you have to trust. You have to believe that the words that come out of a person's mouth actually are true, and they're going to back them up with action, right? Well, in the Bible, the word promise is this, covenant, covenant. Now, we don't use the word covenant a lot because uh, it's kind of an old-fashioned term, but really, if you think about it, a marriage ceremony is a covenant ceremony, or a business partnership is a covenant partnership or even between best friends when you make promises or commitments to one another or say you're going to do something that is a covenant now if we don't understand covenant then we're not going to understand our relationship with God and he with us nor our relationship with each other covenant is very important in fact God is a god of covenant the bible is very clear on this he's a god of covenant in other words what he promises he commits to and it is no matter what often in our society though We're less focused or less intentional about covenant, and we're more focused on convenience. And any relationships, you can put this one, you can take this to the bank, all right? Any relationships that are based upon convenience and not covenant will go away eventually. It's just really true, because convenience, man, I'll tell you what. To be in a promise relationship of any sort, to have trust between two people, it is inconvenient sometimes. And if it's all based upon convenience, well, then that relationship's gonna kind of become weak. But if you have a relationship based upon covenant, in other words, the words that you speak and what you promise to do, you actually, to the best of your ability, try to fulfill those, guess what? That relationship's gonna be strong. And so many times we'll walk back on our commitments over time when things get hard or maybe the feelings go away or maybe a more attractive or lucrative option comes along then we blow off our commitments and that's where we get the term talk is cheap talk is cheap you ever heard that before talk is cheap it actually originated in the 1800s uh we've shortened it now in our modern day culture but Back then, there were two sentences that people would say in American culture when it came to talk is cheap. It was a little bit longer. This is how it went. They would say this, talk is cheap, it takes money to buy a home. That was the original like, way that somebody said that. Talk is cheap, it takes money to buy a home. Another sentence they would say quite frequently is, talk is cheap, it takes money to buy whiskey. No joke. Look this up. This is actually the origination of this, this talk, or of this idiom. And so this is the thing. Now we've shortened it to just talk is cheap. What does that mean? It means this. It means that we need to back up what we say. That's really what it means. And covenant is so important because when you have a relationship that's based upon this mutual trust, that what is spoken and what is promised is under a covenant. And guess what? That we will fulfill our end. Guess what? There is safety there. There's safety in that relationship. And I would even go as far to say, you cannot live a fulfilling life if you can't trust anybody. You know? Kids are especially concerned about promises. In fact, you know, they, they, they hold you to your word, right? For those of you that are parents, dad. You promise that if I did my homework that I'd get ice cream, kids will forget everything except the promises you make to them. It's really true. They forget everything except when you said that, and they hold you to it, right? Promise-keeping is super important to kids, even young kids. In fact, some of you remember this. Some of you remember when you were really young and you didn't trust somebody, like you, they said they were going to do something, and you wanted to make sure they were going to do it, so you'd look at them and go, Promise, cross your heart, hope to die, stick a needle in your eye. What sadistic kid came up with this? I mean, right? But you know what that's really a little kid doing? Really making sure that he or she is clear, that she trusts you, he trusts you, and they want you to fulfill what you said. You know, words are so important. And trust has to be in the relationship. I remember years ago, and this was, this was a long time ago, uh, Caden, our oldest, who's now 19, he's in college down in Florida. Um, it was when he was really, really small, and we bought him his first bike for Christmas. And so Jen and I, we were so excited. I think we went to Toys R Us back when that was open. And we, uh, we went and, and bought this bike, and we hid it downstairs in a guest room in our basement and in a closet. We're like, he never goes in there. Well, Caden is a pretty inquisitive kid and still is to this day, and sure enough, he found the dang bike. I mean, like, I couldn't believe it. Somehow he went in there, he found it, and so he comes upstairs, he goes, Mom, Dad, come here. We're like, what? We start walking downstairs, we start going towards the room, and I looked at Jen, I'm like, oh no, oh no. Sure enough, we walk in there, closet is open, the bike is there, and he points at it, and again, he's like really tiny at this point, he just points, he goes, look at a bike. He goes, whose is it? And uh, we were like... Uh, that's the neighbor's bike, you know, and stuff, and and don't worry, or whatever, we said something, and about a week later, it's Christmas morning, and we bring the bike out with a bow, and we're like, Caden, look at this, a new bike, it had training wheels, the whole nine yards, and he looks at it, and he bursts into tears and starts crying, he's crying, like uncontrollably crying, and we're like, well, this is not the way it was supposed to go, and he uh, looks at us, and he goes, you lied to me. You guys lied to me. You said this was the neighbor's, and it's mine. And I'm going, what is happening right now, you know? He's like, you lied to me. You guys lied to me. And I got down on one knee, and I go, oh, buddy, we didn't lie to you. Your mom lied to you. Do you understand? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> No, I didn't say that.
1: <laughs> but I literally I looked
0: at him, and I go, buddy, I'm so sorry. I go, you're right. I go, we, did, we wanted to surprise you, and you found the surprise, and we made up something. We shouldn't have done that. Forgive us. But you know what it taught me in that moment? It taught me that even little kids take our words very seriously, and they want there to be trust in those words and commitment behind those words, Right? I mean, sometimes we're just bad covenant keepers. And and guess what? God is a perfect covenant keeper. He's a perfect covenant keeper. So I want to take a moment and I want to talk about why he is such a perfect covenant keeper and how we can learn from him. And I think some of us can take notes on this because it's going to help us out a ton. The first one is this. He never enters a covenant irrationally. In other words, flippantly. And, and, and I could literally probably preach the rest of today's message just on this first point. Like, because we would save ourselves and a lot of other people a lot of heartache if we wouldn't just. Flippantly enter into a a covenant or a promise, but rather we'd really think it through 360. We'd look at it. We wouldn't do it irrationally. We We would not just say yes or no or whatever, but we would really take time to think about it and count the costs, right? In fact, there's even a verse in the Bible that says, Count the costs. And so before you make a commitment, before you make a promise, Think about the cost. I tell this to my staff all the time there's no innocent yes. What do I mean by that? When you say yes to something, guess what? That means there's going to be a lot of other choices that come after that. If you say yes to that trip, yes to that commitment, yes to that person, if you say yes, you better count the cost because there's no innocent yes. And so that's what God does. God really thinks about it. Number two, once He enters a covenant, He never goes back on His word. Like he's in, he's all the way in. It's not like one foot in, one foot out, but rather, once he's thought about it and he doesn't enter it irrationally, he enters into the covenant, into the promise, and he goes, I'm all in, I'm all the way in, even when it gets inconvenient. And that's the problem. A lot of times we bail on commitments because of inconvenience, or somehow it puts us out. And and so before you enter into a a relationship, a covenant, a promise, or anything, make sure that you think it through, and then once you're in, you're in. You're in. Number three, that you know what? He chooses to be faithful even though we are notoriously unfaithful. You know, um, this is the thing. God decides that even when we're unfaithful that he's going to be faithful. And, and I'm sure glad he did that because there's been countless times that I've been unfaithful, and he's just continued to be faithful back to me. And, you know, that's a part of covenant. It's kind of like those, you know, no matter what kind of things. And, and, and you know, it, it's, it's, it gets super complicated in our world, and, and, and there's all kinds of scenarios that I know right now you're thinking about and such, but overarchingly 30,000 foot, God d- decides to be faithful. He's like, you know, what? I'm gonna keep up my end of the bargain. The fourth one is basically this: that God, he, he, His covenant keeping is rooted in what I'm calling real love. Now, real love, all right. Now, I know some of you are like going, you know, you just started dating somebody, and you're like, I am experiencing real love right now. No, I'm talking real love, okay, okay. I'm not talking like, you know, uh, you know that you get a goosebump. I'm talking like, like real love. What's real love? What's real love? Well. You see, the New Testament was actually written in the original language of Greek. So when Jesus is talking and teaching, they were taking his teachings and then they put it in Greek language, what we now call the New Testament. Then that Greek language has been interpreted into what we now call English, okay? Now, in our English Bibles, there is this word love. We say love for everything. I love Jesus... I love pepperoni pizza. Does that make sense? That one word means a lot of things. Hopefully we love Jesus more, a lot more than pepperoni pizza. Okay? So so we have this one word. But in the original language of the Greek, there were actually four words for our one word, our English word love. Four words. The first one is this, eros. Eros is a love expressed through sexual passion. Like, it is a, an attractional kind of love. So, like, we use that for love, too. Like, when there's two people in love, we're like, oh, there's that kind of love. Well, the Greeks would say that's an eros kind of love. Now, the next love is phileia. It basically is a love mainly through friendship. In other words, kind of like a brotherly or a sisterly love, like the city Philadelphia. Okay, the first part of that word Philadelphia is based on the Greek word phileia. It means that there is a brotherly love. In fact, it is called the city of brotherly love. Okay, so the Greeks would say there's eros, passion, sexual passion kind of love. And then there is like brotherly, sisterly kind of love. And then they would say this, there's another love called storge. Storge love is the love between a parent and a child. So if you're a parent, you know that you have a special kind of love for your kids, right? And so they would say, that's even another category of love. And then the last category of love, the fourth one, is called agape love. And agape love is self-sacrificial love. In other words, it is putting another person first. It's a love that chooses. It's not a love based upon feelings or even actions. It is a love that chooses agape love. That's the love I want to focus on for the remainder of our time together, because this is the kind of love that God has towards us. He has an agape love. When someone says Jesus loves you, what they're really saying is Jesus agape you. In other words, chooses to love you. In other words, this, he loved you even when you were unlovable, right? In fact, the Bible says that he chose us first, even before we chose him. See, some of you prayed a prayer like, I'm choosing Jesus to be the leader and the forgiver of my life. Well, guess what? Since the beginning of time, before you were even born, before you even made any mistakes, before anything, he chose to love you. He chose to love you. See, that's an agape kind of love. It's not based upon feelings or our actions or what we've done or haven't done. This is the ultimate ride or die kind of love. You hear that? In fact, all significant relationships in our lives rise and fall on how much agape love is in that relationship. Think about that statement. I know that statement. Every service that I preached it in, uh, every statement, or every time I said it, the, the room has been quiet because it's a processing thing. Think about that. Every relationship you have either rises or falls on how much agape love is being exercised in that relationship. How much choosing kind of love, not feeling only kind of love. Instead, you know what, right before Jesus left, before he went and ascended to heaven, he looked at his disciples and he said this, and it's a very famous verse, but you're going to look at it in a new light now that you know the original language. This is what he says in John 13, 34 through 35. So now Jesus says, I'm giving you a new commandment. What he's saying to everybody is going, there's been hundreds of commandments before this in the Old Testament. Mosaic commandments, Levitical commandments, uh, Pharisaical commandments—all these like do's and don'ts. And he goes, "I'm giving you a new one. In fact, this one is going to trump every other one. Love each other." Now we read that in English, and we're like, "Oh, that's nice. Put that on a poster, put it on a bumper sticker. Love each other. You know, put on my Facebook, my Instagram." But if you look at the word love, it's agape. Agape each other. In other words, a love that chooses, sometimes feels. That just as I've loved you, agape you. Just as Jesus says, I've chosen to love you, you choose to love each other. You should love each other. Your agape love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. In other words, it's not a love based upon convenience upon feelings, upon circumstances, upon the other person's actions, but rather you choose to love. That kind of love will get the world's attention is what Jesus was saying. That makes that verse take on a whole different light, doesn't it? Whole different meaning. In fact, Jesus is saying he chose us first and now we choose to love each other. And if we choose to love each other, people outside of faith are gonna notice. So if you are gonna have a successful and fulfilling relationship in your life, you will have to learn how to engage your chooser over your feeler. Okay, that's, that's huge, all right? Because we in America, we are all about the feels. We always are about the feels. But I will tell you, God would say you engage your chooser. You see, the problem is that many times in our culture, we consult our feelings over engaging our chooser. We consult how we feel. So our marriages, we make decisions based upon how we feel. Our best friend relationships, we make decisions based upon how we feel. Our business partnerships, how do we feel? Our friendships, all of that. And here's what Jesus would say. You engage your chooser over your feeler. Your feeler is not bad. Feelings are not wrong because God created you with them, so they're not bad. It's wrong when you live by them. Does that make sense? And so, what we got to do is we got to realize that Jesus came along and said, I'm condensing this whole thing into one simple commandment. I'm wrapping them all up into this that you are to love with an agape kind of love. Love God with an agape kind of love. Love your neighbor with an agape kind of love. How do you love God with an agape kind of love? Well, some of you didn't feel like coming to church today. I mean, can we be honest? I mean, some, I, I mean, I run the place, and there are days that I don't feel like coming to church, okay? Do you understand that? Because I'm human. You're human. You had a bad week. You're tired. Um, situation was going on. Whatever it was, okay? Got in an argument on the way to church. Whatever it was, okay? And, and you're just like, oh, I don't feel like going to church, and I don't feel like worshiping God. And I don't feel these things, all right? But you chose to anyway, and can I tell you, you are exercising an agape kind of love then. When you say, even though I don't feel like it, I choose to worship God because he's worthy of my worship. And I choose to lean into the word of God because I know I need to learn. And I choose to listen to the Holy Spirit because I know he has something to say to me. I am exercising an agape kind of love. And then to love others, your neighbor, with an agape kind of love. Meaning that it's not transactional. It's not like you're trying to get something back, a kickback, but rather you're choosing to love your neighbor. In fact, we put it this way, love God, love people, And love life. You're like, how do I love life with an agape kind of love? Very simply, you choose to focus on the optimistic things that are taking place, the blessings that you have, not on all the negativity, not on all the negative things, but rather you say, God, I celebrate my life, the life you've given to me. Even though it's difficult, I choose to focus on the blessings. You see, that's an agape kind of love. Love God, love people, love life with an agape kind of love. So you say, okay, what is agape kind of love? Well, thankfully and painfully, uh, the Bible spells out what agape love is. It's found in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It's not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. Wish I had an eraser and could take that out of the Bible. That, one, that one's kind of a, that's a stumbling block for me, for you, for all of us. Like we want to keep a record, right? I'll love you, but you did this, right? It does not rejoice in injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance, Now, let's just be honest here for a moment. I read that verse, and you compare it to the love that you and I exercise, and many times we feel inadequate, like we fall short of that. Am I the only one? (laughs) Right? I mean, we look at that, and we're like, well, that seems impossible. But think of it this way. Don't we want to receive that kind of agape love? Don't we want people to show that to us? Like, love us in a kind way, be patient with us, not boast or be proud around us, not demand their own way with us, to treat us justly, to give, not give up on us, to not lose faith in us, to have a hope and to stick with us, ride or die. <laughs> I mean, isn't that kind of the love we want? We'll accept agape love all day long, but it's hard for us to give agape love all day long. And here's the reason why. It's super difficult because it goes against our human nature. Because we are, by nature, selfish creatures. And so God comes along and says, love others with an agape kind of love. And you know what? If you do that, your relationships are going to be the most fulfilling, whatever they are. And, and, And so here is something that we must think of. And answer this question. As it pertains to our relationships, what does agape love require of me? What does agape love require of me? Like, I, I know, I know some of you are like going, that just seems impossible. And, and can I be honest with you? I think it is to a certain degree. I don't think it's impossible. I think it's really, really hard. And here's the reason why. Without the help of the Holy Spirit, we can't do it. We, we just can't do it. So I'm always one of these people and I'm going to encourage you always to be very honest with God. Don't don't try to snow them. Don't try to put up a facade. Don't try to like give them lip service. But why don't you talk to them just very honestly and say this. God, I heard the sermon on having agape love in my relationships. I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. I don't think I can do it. But I'm asking you by the strength of your Holy Spirit to give me the ability to show agape love. See, that's a great prayer, a prayer that's just honest, a prayer that isn't trying to put on a facade, but rather asking the Holy Spirit to help you be a covenant-keeping, agape love type of a person. I want to end here with a story by Robertson and Muriel. McQuilkin. And uh, the story, I discovered it years and years ago. But Robertson was the president of Columbia International University. And he wrote this. He said about his wife, Muriel. It has been a decade since that day in Florida when my wife, Muriel, repeated to the couple vacationing with us the story she had just finished telling five minutes earlier. Funny, I thought. It's never happened before, but then it began to happen occasionally. He then writes about how she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and began a long and slow descent and reflects as a husband how it changed their lives. This is what he said. She is a delight to me. I don't have to care for her. I get to. One blessing is how she is teaching me so much about love. For example, God's love. She picks flowers outside, anyone's flowers, and fills the house, house with them. Lately, she's begun to pick them inside too. Someone had given us a beautiful Easter lily, two stems with four or five lilies on each, and more to come. One day, I came into the kitchen, and on the windowsill, there was a vase with a stem of lilies in it, I've learned to go with the flow and not correct irrational behavior. She means no harm. She just doesn't understand what should be done, nor would she remember a rebuke. Nevertheless, I did the irrational. I told her how disappointed I was and how the lilies would soon die and how the buds would never bloom. Please do not ever break the stem again. The next day, our Youngest son was about to leave for India and came for a last visit. I told Ken of my rebuke for his mother and how bad I felt on the inside. As we sat on the porch swing, savoring each moment together, his mother came out the door with a gift of love for me. She carefully laid the other stem of lilies on the table with a gentle smile and turned back and went in the house. I looked at Muriel and simply said, Thank you. Ken looked at me and said, Doing better, Dad. Muriel cannot speak in sentences anymore, only in words and phrases, and often the words make little sense. Like she says no when she means yes, for example. But one sentence that she says with clarity, and she says it often, is this I love you. Not only does she say it, she acts it. The board at the college where I serve as president had arranged for a companion to stay at our house so I could go into the office. During those two years, it became increasingly difficult to keep Muriel at home because as soon as I left, she would take off after me. With me, she was content. Without me, she was distressed. The walk to the school was about a mile round trip and she would make that trip as many as 10 times a day. Sometimes at night, When I helped her undress, I found that her feet were bloody. When I told our family doctor this, he choked up and said, such love. And then after a moment, he wiped away the tears and said, I have a theory that the characteristics developed across the years come out in times like these in Alzheimer patients. I wish I loved God like that, Robertson wrote. Desperate to be near him at all times. And though she teaches me this daily, it's still difficult. Friends and family often ask, how are you doing? I think they mean, how do I feel? I'm at a loss to respond. There's a grief that will not go away. I feel just as alone as if I'd never met her, or known her before. But the loneliness of the... Night hours comes because I did know her. My friends wonder how I'm coping as they reflect on how the alleged indispensable characteristics of a good marriage have slipped away one by one. I recently read this in a newspaper, this contemporary wisdom that was a letter written to a columnist that said this, quote, I ended the relationship because it wasn't meeting my needs, end quote. The counselor's response that he wrote back was predictable. It read, "Do you still have the same? Do you still have those same needs? What would he have to do to fulfill those needs? Could he do it? Needs for communication, understanding, affirmation, common interest, sexual fulfillment, and the list goes on. As I read it, I thought he offers no alternatives." and I reflected on the eerie irrelevance of every one of those criteria for me in my present circumstances. As she needed more and more of me, I wrestled with the question, who gets me full time, the college or Muriel? The doctor advised me to not make any decision based on my desire to see Muriel stay content. Make your plans apart from that question, he said. Whether or not you can be successful with your dreams with the college I cannot judge he said but I could tell you definitively that you will not be successful with Muriel when the time came the decision was clear it required no great calculation had I not promised had I not promised 42 years earlier at a church altar in sickness and in health till death do us part. I've been startled by the response of the announcement of my resignation from the college. Husbands and wives have renewed their marriage vows. Pastors tell this story to their congregations. It was a mystery to me until a distinguished oncologist who lives consistently with dying people told me this. He said, women stand by their men. Very, Very few men stand by their women. It's more than just keeping promises or being fair though. As I watch Muriel's brave descent into oblivion, this is the joy of my life. She is the joy of my life. Daily I discern new manifestations of the kind of person she is, the wife I always love. Daily I see manifestations of God's love, the God I long to love more fully. Watch this, as this is a clip, a portion of Robertson's resignation from Columbia International University.
1: I haven't in my life experienced easy decision-making on major decisions, but uh, one of the simplest and clearest decisions I've had to make is this one, because circumstances dictated it. Uh, Muriel, now, uh, in the last couple of months, seems to be almost happy when with me and almost never happy when not with me. In fact, she seems to feel trapped, becomes very fearful, sometimes almost terror, and when she can't get to me, there can be anger. She's in distress. But when I'm with her, She's happy and contented. And so I must be with her at all times. And you see, it's not only that I promised in sickness and in health, till death do us part. And I'm a man of my word. But as I have said, I don't know with this group, but I've said publicly, it's the only fair thing she sacrificed for me for 40 years to make my life possible. So, if I cared for her for 40 years, I'd still be in debt. However, there's much more. It's not that I have to, it's that I get to. I love her very dearly, and you can tell it's not easy to talk about. She's a delight. It's a great honor to care for such a wonderful person.
0: Yeah, you can give that round of applause. It's pretty amazing. I don't have all the answers to all the relationship issues that you're going through right now. And all of us are going through different ones. It might be a business partnership. It might be a marriage situation. I don't know. But here's here's what I want to leave us with. What does agape love require of me? All we could do is ask the Holy Spirit to help us, right? You're not going to be perfect. But what does agape love require of me? How can I be a promise keeper, not a promise breaker? Let me pray with you. Heavenly Father, I just pray that as we close here in a moment, that God, you would help us to be people who keep our promises. Lord, help us to be people that do not irrationally enter into commitments, partnerships, relationships. But to be people who really think and count the cost. And then once we do, may we be all in. May we show agape love. Lord, Robertson's story is just an anomaly in our culture today. It's almost shocking. But help us to learn more about that kind of agape love that you showed us and that we are to show others. Holy Spirit, help us because quite honestly, we don't know how to do it. I don't know how to do it, and all my friends here listening don't know how to do it. We need your strength, but help us to give it a try. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, let's give God a praise. Can we do that?